You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. This week, I'm excited to welcome Pablo Juarez, uh, Master's in Education, Board Certified Behavior Analyst, and Director of the Treatment and Research Institute for Autism Spectrum Disorders. That's the triad in the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center. On today's podcast, we'll talk about the, the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center Triad Community Engagement Program, which is an innovative partnership with community, cultural, and civic organizations that work to promote full inclusion of all children and adults. Pablo Juarez is the perfect person to talk to because he's been honored for his work in Tennessee with supporting the inclusion of children and adults with ASD in the community. His emphasis on extending services to lower resourced communities has opened doors across Tennessee and brought about inventive ways to increase access to care. Pablo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Well, I'm, I'm excited to have you on because I think the conversations we're going to have today are ones that need to be brought to the forefront. And, and it's not only on community supports, but on treatment models and care models and really understanding that, that marriage between community, recipient of care, and the provider community as well. But before we go there is that everybody's journey to this path came about differently. And your journey obviously has a heavy impact in community access and, and being able to really empower communities. So how did you start your your travel and becoming a behavior analyst and focusing on this care? Yeah, that's uh it's an interesting journey. It's um yeah, it might be cliche to say it, but it started back when I was a child, you know, my grandparents uh didn't speak English for a long period of time and the only job they could get in central Texas was, you know, picking agriculture and harvesting and so uh, a big part of their lives were spent in fields and on farms picking cotton and, and other types of produce. And uh, my dad did some of that until um, and his siblings until my grandmother learned enough English to get a job as a teaching assistant in a special education classroom in, in, uh, in Central Texas. And so ever since I was a kid, I've, I've known um, about disabilities and had access to disabilities. She would often babysit some of the kids from her class and, and families would come over and hang out. So I've been around disabilities for a long period of time um, ever since then. And then, you know, I got into uh, uh, school and, and, and really started to focus on soccer and I played soccer all the way through high school had a very bad injury that required some back surgery uh, my junior year in high school. And uh, while that was terrible and I lost some scholarship offers, what was great was that the special education teacher came to me and said, will you help me coach Special Olympic soccer? And I was like, yes, I would, I would love to. And I did and I loved it. And what was, uh, it was really powerful for me. And I ended up getting a job in a group home, uh, a, a, a local residential home that that like six of these guys from the soccer team lived in and spent summers there i lived for a summer in the house with them which was amazing um but got my start as a direct service personnel right away um in high school went to college to become a special education teacher which was at the university of north texas 
where I started to focus on soccer and I played soccer all the way through high school. Had a very bad injury that required some back surgery uh, my junior year in high school. And uh, while that was terrible and I lost some scholarship offers, what was great was that the special education teacher came to me and said, will you help me coach Special Olympic soccer? And I was like, yes, I would. I would love to. And I did, and I loved it. And what was uh, it was really powerful for me. And I ended up getting a job in a group home, uh, a, a, a local residential home that, that like six of these guys from the soccer team lived in and spent summers there. I lived for a summer in the house with them, which was amazing. Um, but got my start as a direct service personnel right away um, in high school, went to college to become a special education teacher, which was at the University of North Texas, where I kind of fell into the behavior analysis program and realized uh, the impact it could have and, and um, uh, kind of fell in love with that as a, uh, a, a future road for me. So that's that's essentially how I got my start. Well, I mean, just knowing that your your journey started at a young age is that you were immersed in the in the community, in the culture, in the decision making, and especially with your job being focused towards disability and athletics as that primary one, is that you're representing people that you were able to kind of get their voice, understand their needs, being able to do that. I would imagine that that played huge dividends in the way that you perceive treatment and in the way that you're trying to engage people. And I guess for for me and and for others, I'd love to know kind of you know what the goal of the triad is and and how that might tie into some of those learning experiences that you had. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think um, you know triad has evolved quite a bit, and and we started in the mid '90s. Uh, Wendy Stone started triad primarily focused on. Um, autism diagnosis, and we became one of the first sites in, in the country to be able to reliably diagnose children with autism uh, from the ages of, you know, 12 to 18 months. And um, that was, that continues to be a big focus for us is how do we develop services that provide diagnostic assessments to those who need it as, as early as possible and as quickly as possible. So fast forward from then to now, we're kind of pioneering a way of, of providing diagnostic assessments directly via telepractice within homes. Um, and we're able to do this in, you know, low income rural communities almost always with whatever those families have in their homes. And so, you know, that's been kind of the the the, the big journey for us as uh, from start to finish. But along the way, we started to pick up other activities and develop other service lines. Um, particularly in regards to some of the work we do within the state. So, you know, we can develop programs to support uh, behavioral health or academic growth or early intervention or, you know, mental health activities. We can do all those things, but the way we want to do them and is a way that is uh, sustainable and they can work within existing existing systems of care. So that's why we work very closely with our partners at the Tennessee Department of Education or the Tennessee Department of Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities or the Tennessee Department of Health. You know, we really want to be in these big systems that allow us access to communities across the state, no matter where they are, um, whether they're in, you know, an impoverished inner city or they're in the Appalachian Mountains. So. Um, for us, you know, all the work we do is is really any program we develop. It's focused on uh, rural, low-income access. 
And so whatever a wealthy family can accomplish in Nashville is great, but we should be able to have similar gains and similar outcomes for families who live in far northeast Tennessee. Um, so I think for us, being able to think about those communities we're working in and serving is really important because there are some cultural sensitivity that comes along with those too. Working with families in uh, an inner city is very different than working from families at the foothill of, of, of some mountains in a town that gets very little in terms of resources and they come with different cultural needs and different cultural expectations. So, you know, we can't develop good, thoughtful service lines if we're not taking those community and cultural needs at the very core of what we're doing and how we're developing it. So for us, that's a very important approach is really involving the community and all of that development. Well, I, I I really appreciate the fact that that is the focus because I can say is that I, I've been in I've been in the field for for a while now about 20 years and when I came into the field I will say is that it it really was a one size fits all model is taking into consideration the needs of the community those those cultural aberrations that occur across every group wasn't the focus and I think we were doing it inadvertently wrong, good intended, but inadvertently wrong. And I think over time, we've learned so much to realize that a behavioral model can exist for everybody, but we have to listen to that community partner to really understand how to get buy-in, how to modify our treatment to meet the needs of that community, and to start getting away from those inequalities that exist that you had talked about as far as rural or underserved or socio-demographic areas that just don't have access to care. Um, I guess, what are you seeing on that level as far as, I mean, are there inherent inequalities that exist right now that maybe we need to continue to kind of bring to the forefront? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I think um, you talked about socioeconomic, you know, there's a lot to consider there in service delivery is, is one is we can figure out what technology to use and to put in homes or, you know, if, if we're working with a family, say through, so here's an example, we might have a family come through our, our telediagnostic autism service. So the t Tennessee Early Intervention System may refer a family to us because they think this child may have autism. And so we'll zoom into their home and provide a diagnostic assessment via telepractice. And we either say, yes, your child has autism. No, they don't have autism. Or we're not sure. We need you to come into a clinic or we'll send a clinician closer to you. So that way we can spend some more time and really dig into it. Or it might be that, you know, we're not sure. Why don't we see you again in six months? But in the meantime, regardless of what we tell you, we're going to enroll your child into some level of service delivery because we know they're going to need it. Now, you know, we've worked with families who don't have the technology for that or they don't have the data plans for that. So we'll send them, you know, uh, devices and hotspots and those types of things. But then there become challenges if there is not broadband access um, or there become challenges if, uh, you know, families aren't comfortable. And that, that's a big one is we found over, you know, since the start of the pandemic, families have become much more comfortable with telepractice and this type of technology because it's ubiquitous in a lot of ways but still it requires a level of trust to be able to do that and it all comes down to relationships and a lot of the inequalities we identify we identify through that initial relationship building phase which is really important we can't just dive in and say here's what we're going to do here's what you need to do x y and z we're done see you later <clears throat> we have to really do some initial work to to try to identify where the comfort is 
where the needs are, what are the things we should focus on, are there certain things we should do and shouldn't do. Um, and those are going to vary greatly from family to family, even within the same community. So it, it all comes down to that individual relationship level. And those things are hard to do systematically. It's hard to build that into a system because we want systems to be efficient and fast and we want to reduce cost. Um, but there's just no way to really make uh, to build trust without that initial relationship building base. That has to be a part of any system that we develop. And and it sounds like you all are tackling that system right now. I mean, it, historically, what it was, was a bunch of clinicians getting in a room and deciding this is what we're doing. Um, and without too much of the input from the community, without the input from different cultures without the, the neurodiverse input. I think what I'd love to, for you to, you to kind of have the platform is explain to the group and explain to everyone is, you know, that initiative that you all are putting in place, the community-based instruction. What is that? And, and how is that filling the gap right now? Thank you for asking. There are kind of two big focus areas of that. One is, you know, building community. And what does it look like to actually uh, immerse a community in education and technical assistance and support in um, building services and resources that are truly inclusive for people with disabilities. That's a whole community approach. And then there's the idea of service delivery development. So how do we think about the services we provide on an individual level, not just a community level, but like if we're providing behavior analytic services, what are the things we need to think about there that are community informed? So. You know, we can talk first about kind of the whole community approach, and I think that one's really important is, you know, we have a um, a family training program here called Families First, and it's a it's a really important program for us because it is our opportunity to, to, to work directly with families um, in a, a pretty substantial way. So families can come into us. Uh, we basically have a session where they come in person. We've been doing it virtually lately, but but it's great when it can happen in person because it becomes this sort of hybrid between a, a like a training session but also a support group session because there are other families there and we're able to, to kind of ask each other questions and build conversations and build relationships with people who are, who are who are facing similar challenges now through those we can teach families how to um, of, of young children with autism for example how to best uh, support their child in going to let's say uh, the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum. And maybe the child really loves country music and that's what they want to do. But getting into the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum is really expensive. And if you're taking an entire family there only to go in and fear uh, uh, perhaps that that uh, something in the environment is going to upset your child and we may end up in a meltdown and you have to leave after a couple of minutes, you've potentially spent a lot of money just to go in and, and see you know, a very small number of things and then have your child in a really vulnerable state that you also have to be able to support and think about too. The onus of those opportunities should not be directly on uh, autistic or disabled people or their loved ones. It's got to be on the community. So when we recognize that, we started to reach out to local community programs. So, you know, places like the Nashville Zoo and the Country Music Hall of Fame and Cheekwood Botanical Gardens and the Nashville Ballet and the Nashville Opera, you know, all these places that families want to go and they want to engage with. Um, we have about 40 community partners at this point. 
And what we set out to do was we want to teach you how to develop your environment in a way that's inclusive. Um, you know, it could be uh, related to uh, making their environment more predictable. So the zoo, for example, has has maps on their website that show, you know, the 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 various ways you could go to avoid, you know, loud noises or 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 uh, or the jungle gym. They have a really great uh, playground at the zoo that sometimes parents have a hard time moving their children on from. So there may be a social story for how to do that. There are different resources for how to be successful in those environments. But then also within activities. So how do you develop activities that are truly inclusive um, and that provide the types of supports that that anybody would be successful with, but particularly thinking about uh, individuals with autism or other disabilities. So we set out to do that with community partners and 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 we bring them together a couple of times a year and they actually teach each other now. They, they've learned lessons and, and they're a pretty strong coalition um, within primarily the city of Nashville, but in some some other areas too where we feel very comfortable telling families now like okay you want to go to the zoo here's some resources they have on their website here's some other things they can provide uh, their staff are trained in these areas so you can go and, and feel comfortable doing that we've had great responses from the families that, that we've we've sent to those locations and our partners have been really excited and we're moving not only from the idea of how do you support people in your environment as a consumer but how do you employ them too Right. And what does that look like to not only hire people with disabilities, but to retain them um, in employment in a way where they're happy uh, and successful? So, you know, it's really become a whole community approach to uh, take much of the burden off of the uh, individual with disabilities and their family because the burden should not be on them. Right. We should, as a community, wrap around them and figure out how to better provide those supports. And the last thing I'll say is when we do that, we really lift everybody up, right? If we can develop those types of supports uh, in that way, it really benefits everyone. Absolutely. And oftentimes I would imagine community members, they have good intent. They'd love to be a participant. They don't know where to start. You guys have given that platform for them to, to be actively involved. Nobody, I, I would imagine, nobody wants to exclude people from environments. Nobody wants to do that, but they don't always have the the knowledge set to start the process. And once you start it, it seems like it's like a snowball. It's like, you know, I'm going to figure this out. I saw it in Utah once with restaurants. They did similar to what you're describing right there, where they got a bunch of restaurants together to talk about how to be able to create an environment within those within those groups to open up more opportunities where families don't feel scared to bring their child because of others reactions or the environmental setup and not feeling like I could ever do it again because I had one bad experience, but instead is create the community around them. So it, all of that I think is so valuable. And the more that we do that, the more you create an inclusive world. Um, but you, you also had mentioned is that there's another part to community-based instruction is that there's there's a second tier. Not only do you have to create the community that's willing to evolve around people who might require some some different supports in different environments, but there's got to be a way to do it where you are being more cognizant of your approach and your treatment planning. So what is what is that piece to this? What what is it that you're working on there? Yeah, I mean it really comes down to culture change and thinking about how to do that well. So even in this this work I just described from a whole community standpoint. It's it's the idea that, you know, uh, 
we need to move away from this idea that we need to change people so they can fit in to the culture. We need to change the culture uh, to better fit anybody who's got different needs, uh, has, has uh, disabilities, requires supports. You know, there's, there's ways to do that well. Um, at the individual level, we need to have that perspective too. Is, our, is what we're asking the people we're serving to learn? So for example, through uh, behavior analysis, one of the programs that 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 we uh, run is a statewide um, school-based behavior analysis program, where we end up working with students who require some of the highest resources in the state. So it's not uncommon for us to have a school come to us and request support because they have a student who um, maybe only comes to school a couple of hours a day because they engage in high rates and and uh, of severe and dangerous behavior. And when they're there for those two hours a day, they may be with two, three, four adults full time um, to help provide safety. And so, you know, those are, are typically the students we work with in this particular program. Oftentimes, uh, almost all the time, they'll have some level of intellectual and developmental disability. But even with that, it doesn't mean that our focus needs to be on decreasing behavior, right? We certainly want to make sure that we see a reduction in dangerous behavior, but it's not by changing that person to fit the needs of the environment. It's really what does this person need to learn to be successful? We're going to teach them skills so that way they no longer have to engage in those dangerous behaviors. And then we're going to continue to work with that team. The, the, the benefit we're in is we don't have to clinically bill to maintain our services. We have a, a grant contract with the state that allows us to work long term with some of these students. So we may identify what the student needs and from a communication standpoint, an academic standpoint, a behavioral standpoint right off the bat. We may be able to teach them the skills that allow us to see behavior reduction pretty quickly, um, but then we want to spend a lot more time with that student to make sure we're building those foundational communication and academic skills so they can remain engaged, they can remain happy, and they can remain successful. We don't see renewal or resurgence of, of some of those dangerous behaviors, and they're increasingly uh, in an environment where their presence is sustainable because they are successful. And that takes time to build those skills. That takes time to build those relationships and time to change that culture within the schools. Um, so that's our general approach, but there's a lot of things we do there that are pretty different, I think, too. And and it all comes down to, for us, our community-informed practice approach. And so, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, we started to really understand, I would say seven to eight years ago, we started to really understand uh, the growing opposition to applied behavior analysis and some of the goals of applied behavior analysis. And um, our team spent a lot of time with the feedback we're hearing from the community on social media and uh, in person from families, um, from individuals that we're working with and providing services to. And we developed an approach uh, through a set of guiding principles that I won't go into a lot of detail here, but um, we developed a set of guiding principles that really guide our work in this particular program. And we ran those by uh, our community advisory committee at the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center and the Arc of Tennessee's family engagement team and various other organizations and people received feedback, made adjustments, got more feedback and kind of settled on this community informed approach where the things we're doing we feel like are informed directly by the community. What does that mean? It means a lot of different things, but some of the big things you may hear about is, you know, compliance. 
we feel like there's no need for compliance goals and the goals that we write or that we help teachers reframe when they ask for compliance goals or we or, or if families may ask us for those is how do we reframe that into engagement cooperation or safety goals and that may sound like a, a small thing it may sound semantic but it's not because if we're focusing on just compliance oftentimes service delivery stops at that point and the expectation from the people who ask us to come in are that we stop at that point because we've achieved following directions. We've achieved the ability to comply when we ask somebody to. But if we reframe it into cooperation, engagement, or safety, then we can develop goals and skills that build and that are foundational for other goals and, and skills. And so once we accomplish those, the people who call us in to provide these services are typically really excited to see what's next and to be able to build off that. So we develop this sort of proactive approach. Um, but those are things that our, our community partners have told us, like you have to do. You can't engage in compliance goals. Uh, an important form of compliance is conformity. So oftentimes we'll get calls about a student in a classroom who's engaging in maybe high rates of hand flapping. And if it's not dangerous, and if it's not extremely disruptive, then we will go in and we'll, we'll work on reframing what that is. Um, and it doesn't mean we're going to work on decreasing the the, 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 the self-stimulatory behavior. If it's not dangerous and not extremely disruptive, we won't. But what we're going to do is, okay, well, what are your goals for this person? What are some other things we can work on? And how can we educate and be able to provide some support? Um, so that's important to us too. So there's a lot more to it. But what I will say is that we have, we have focused heavily on feedback from the community, uh, embedded that within kind of the core of what we do. Um, and that's how we provide services. Uh, the last thing I'll say, if I may, is that's not enough for us. The next thing we want to do is move towards community assessed practice. So community informed practice for us means we've we've done the initial legwork, we've gotten the initial feedback, and we're moving forward. Now, any behavior analyst or practitioner knows that that if you set a certain model, there's it's easy to drift from that, and it's easy to to see variances in that, especially as kind of idiosyncratic things come up. Um, so what we're going to be doing uh, within the next six months is meeting regularly, probably two to three times a year with a community advisory committee that is diverse. It's going to include autistic people, um, uh, other caregivers, other practitioners, families, educators. But what we'll do is is really work through, walk through the work we've done over whatever period of time it's been. Uh, look at aggregated goals, look at interventions, talk about tricky decision-making situations we were in, um, but really to get assessment on a regular basis of our work and be able to modify and make adjustments to that. And that's not too much for people to ask. You know, people are telling us they want accountability as behavior analysts. And so it, it's actually not that hard to provide in the position we're in, because again, we don't have to worry about billing. We have grants and contracts and other things to be able to support that work. But since we can do it, we're going to do it. No, and, and what you're doing right now, I think, is just creating a practice model that is more centered on empowerment and giving more opportunity. Um, and, and maybe this is a, a big ask of you, but you've talked to a lot of families. I'd love to hear kind of what that what that psyche of the family or of the child is if what you are describing isn't happening, if that child is being restricted all the time, 
if they're not feeling like they have value because they're being told to change all these aspects about them instead of trying to empower them with more tools and you're focused on the wrong things like how does how's that feeling being presented to you a lot of anxiety and stress um a lot of of fear uh a lot of self-doubt, you know, I mean, those things are easy to creep in when we tell people like what you're doing is wrong and you need to do this instead. And when it's a, a an intrinsically hard thing for somebody to do, it becomes really challenging. Uh, you know, I, I, we work with, with, with students who have autism or ADHD or other, uh, or sometimes emotional, um, emotional behavior disorders. Um, and there are things that come along with that level of neurodiversity that can be extremely challenging for some people from executive functioning to self-regulation. Uh, and when that's an intrinsic challenge, trying to tell somebody that they're not doing it well, doesn't do anything but add stress and anxiety. And sometimes, oftentimes leads to more challenges for that individual uh, and sometimes places them in environments or in situations where they're not safe. So we see a lot with, you know, emotional behavior disorder, for example, that minority children are often overdiagnosed or overplaced in situations where they end up in restricted settings because they have emotional behavior disorder or some other uh, type of neurodiversity like autism or ADHD. And that places them in a restrictive setting right off the bat. That places a lot more contingencies and, um, uh, structure around a person that maybe isn't conducive to the way they learn or the way they want to live. And and that becomes really challenging for that person and can create uh, big issues down the road. I've talked to a number of adults who um, have talked about the things they've done to deal with that sort of stress and anxiety, sometimes self-harm, uh, sometimes overindulging in substances, um, sometimes overindulging in sexual activity or engaging in sexual activity they don't want to. Um, you know, there's a lot of things we see down the line that comes out of this anxiety and stress uh, that we really, really need to understand is a real issue and a real concern if we don't change the way we practice and the way we approach uh, the types of challenges that we're trying to solve. No, I mean, it's a very interesting perspective. And one I hope that more people are starting to share is understanding is that not doing the appropriate thing with a with a practice, whether that's behavioral or if that's uh, social emotional practices, is that you could influence the wrong social outcomes. And I'd love to just have a little bit more of an understanding of, you know, you talked about community assessed practices. And is that the way that we are going to start removing some of that stigma, misconceptions, and improve social outcomes over time is by being able to readily evaluate them? I think it has to be. I mean, the way behavior analysis, for example, is developed, and, and again, you know, I'm obviously a behavior analyst and a little bit biased in that regard, but I will say that there are other professions who are actively dealing with these same issues, including speech-language pathology. But this, these have been issues that, that, that large service professions have been dealing with for a long time. Um, what we need to learn at the point in our field is how to listen and how to change the way we behave. You know, we, we are not providing services at large scale in the way that um, that that is really conducive to long term success and, and outcomes oftentimes. So I think getting that type of community assessment on our work, um, ensuring that our values and our our, our, our uh, 
our professional judgment are headed in the right direction based off the accountability that communities want us to have uh, is vital. If we're not doing that, then we're going to lose our way pretty easily. And I think we see that a lot of times, and especially when um, we end up seeing behavior programs from local or you know other national uh, behavior analysis uh, centers or clinics that that really are cookie cutter or pushing 40 hour week programs or really trying to figure out how to optimize their income by providing uh, more services than they need to or services in a way that's more restrictive than they need to be. Um, that seems to happen quite a bit and in a growing amount. And I'll say beyond that, you know, that's how we can focus on that from a local practice standpoint, but that needs to be a bigger perspective from statewide and national levels too. We are not doing ourselves as a field, uh, doing ourselves a favor as a field if what we do is try to demystify every argument that comes up against applied behavior analysis. If we argue against it and tell somebody why they're wrong, you know, we're just digging ourselves uh, much deeper uh, in trouble and making it harder to be able to, to to demonstrate the substantive change some people are trying to to, to make. Um, it really traps us in a way as a, as a whole field uh, that can be really hard to, I guess, I don't want to say fight against, that's not the right word, but to be able to to change perception. But we can't do that on our own, right? Like I've been able to go in and have, have conversations with a lot of autistic people and a lot of caregivers and other folks about about behavior change um, but it's because we've demonstrated the ability to listen to communities and make changes based off that for a couple of years now so i don't believe we can have those conversations until there's some demonstration that we're actually listening and changing and consistently assessing what we're doing and that we're accountable and and the best way I know to do that, at least in the way we do work, is through some level of community assessed practice. No, and I, I couldn't agree more. I think that um, having those conversations and being honest and understanding perspective is the only way to be able to start evolving over time. It doesn't mean that the science is wrong. It means that the application has to always be fine-tuned. And I've seen that over the years. It, it's got to continue. It's got to be that trajectory. And I mean, and you even, you hit on um, prescribing of care is that it's an individual as assessment as prescriptions should be individualized. And oftentimes is that if an organization is just defaulting to this is how we do it versus saying is I'm going to look at each one of these individuals as an individual and look at what the needs are and what they are requiring or requesting. Well, let's take all that into into uh into consideration as I'm trying to evaluate the appropriate treatment plan. Um, it sounds like you guys are tackling so much right now, and it's probably too much to get into everything at the moment. And I think one thing I do want to leave all the listeners with is the ability to kind of start reading up on this themselves. I don't think this should be a Nashville-centric thing. I think this should be a model that should be looked at and replicated to give that same sort of effort that you're doing right now a chance to, to have a national scale to it. I think that we should all be learning from these experiences and all the research that you all have put in. So where can people find the resources about uh, community-informed practice in general? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I think in terms of you know our, our larger whole community work, there's there's a lot of that on our website in terms of the partners we work with and events that come up. And, and I think that that's an important resource. We have uh, a, a page that's going to be coming up soon that talks about our Autistic Advisory Committee. 
And so this is something that we've developed within the last year. We've had a community advisory committee that's been pretty diverse, but we wanted one that was specifically um, made up of autistic people. And so uh, we're going to have a, a web page coming up soon that talks about the development of that uh, and, and the building relationships with those folks and the way that they really help improve our work and then provide us really important guidance. Um, so I think that's one thing that can be helpful. And then we are in the process of, of, of uh, actually getting our, our guiding principles. We call them our review of practice questions. Uh, those are about to be put up on a web page as well. So I would encourage you to check back on that. And what we plan to do is build resources around that over the next couple of years and have, um, you know, interns from the Vanderbilt University ABA program and, and other programs and, and uh, some of our own behavior analysts being able to develop some of those resources to put out there um, at no cost. We, you know, we, we believe very much in, in kind of, uh, you know, open sourcing everything we develop. So all that stuff will be there over the next couple of years. But, you know, we've worked to get to this point where we're just now starting to talk about it because we wanted to be comfortable with what we were doing and we wanted to make sure that the people we're serving and our advisors uh, are comfortable with what we're doing and that we're doing it in a way that reflects the needs of the community. And so we, we've spent a lot of purposeful time just digging into that by ourselves and really pushing that forward. But now I think we're at the point where we're really hoping to push a lot of that out and get that out to as many people as can use it. So I would, I would kind of stay tuned to that over the next couple of years in terms of what's on the website. There will be resources up within the next, uh, I would think, couple of weeks actually. Um, and then the other thing I would say is, you know, we we just hired a new director of behavior analysis research. Um, we haven't had anybody in that position before. Uh, and um, he's going to be able to come in. His name is um, Adithian Rajarman, and he focuses a lot on trauma-informed care and is very much uh, on board, appreciative, and supportive of a community-informed and assessed practice approach. And so we'll be able to develop more specific research around that area, but we've just been really focused on providing those services and doing it well. And we'll definitely uh, provide that link to to the web page, and hopefully that is where any sort of triad community engagement would be available as well. But um, I, I appreciate the work that you're doing on this. I think that like anything else, Rome's not built in a day. So, I mean, it's going to take time and, and you have to get buy-in from so many different people to make it valuable and to make it work. But it's also for us all to remember is that having flexibility in our thought and being able to understand somebody else's viewpoint and being able to realize we don't need to be rigid in our belief system is probably what's going to create this model of care that you're that you're trying to establish and you have me bought in so hopefully you'll be able to convince so many others of the same thing but we appreciate your time pablo thank you so much it was great to be here thank you for listening to autism weekly we hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting ABS Kids. Dot com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.